Go with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 11. I want to look at the words of Jesus this morning. Beginning in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. The Bible says, At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, notice this word, and have revealed them. You've revealed them to babes, he said. Verse 26, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except, or excuse me, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This is the second time in just a few verses that Jesus has used this word reveal. He said that the Father had hidden things from the so-called wise and the so-called prudent. And he said he had revealed them to babes, or you might say unlearned, uneducated. And one of the things we have to understand as believers is that we're not just after more information. What do we want? Revelation. Information's good, but what we want is revelation. Jesus one day asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? This was in the days before one could Google one's self to find out who men say that you are. And Jesus said to them, who do men say that I am? And you remember their answer. They said, well, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're or one of the prophets. And they had several answers for kind of the, the general consensus, the, the popular opinion of who Jesus was at that time. But then he asked them a far more important question. Who do you say that I am? That is the most important question that any human being will ever answer in their entire life on this earth. Who do you say that Jesus is? Not who does everybody say that he is. Who do you say that he is? And Peter, gotta love Peter, he piped up. Oh, I know, I know, mm -mm, pick me, pick me. And Jesus said, I see that hand. And Peter said, you are the Christ the son of the living God. Notice not one of anything, the. And what Jesus said to him is, yes, and you are blessed. Where does this blessing come from? Out of knowing who Jesus was, who Jesus is. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to Peter, and you are Simon Bar-Jonah. You are Peter. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. What rock? The rock not of Peter. Peter's not a rock. But the rock of that information on who Jesus is? No. Revelation. And that's why Jesus said to Peter, you're blessed because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father. In other words, Peter, you didn't find this out through higher education. You didn't find this out through a bunch of study. You didn't put this together with math and science. You got this from God. And it didn't come to you through tradition. And that's what tradition is. Something handed from one generation to another, from one individual to another. That's tradition. And, P and Jesus is saying to Peter, you didn't get this that way. Nobody else informed you of this. You got this by revelation. And this is why we're not after just more information, just more knowledge. Knowledge is a wonderful thing. But what you and I need is revelation knowledge. Something that can come not from one person to another, but through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that's inside of us. It's a light that only God himself can turn on. And that's what revelation is. It's the light coming on. It's the cover coming off. 
Revelation. We need that. Things that have been hidden, we need them to be revealed. Things that have been concealed, we need to see openly. And that's what revelation is. That's what revelation does. If, you, if you're coming into a room and it's a pitch black room and you're looking for something and you're fumbling around and you can't find it and then somebody comes behind you and turns the light on and you look in the corner and there's that thing you were looking for, you don't, you don't say, oh, look what the light put there. The light didn't put it there. The light showed you what was there all along. The light showed you what had been sitting right there. That's what revelation is. It's the light coming on, not to show you what it, you know, what's been put there, it just, or, or not to create something there, excuse me, but to show you what was already there. Does that make sense? I say all that because notice Jesus used that word two times in what he's saying as he's praying and what he's saying to his disciples. I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from, like I said, so-called wise and prudent, but you have revealed them. You've revealed them. You've, you've taken the cover off. You've, you've turned the light on. You flipped the switch for these people. And he said in verse 27 again, all things have been delivered to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son. Now listen to this. And the one to whom the Son will, wills to reveal Him. There is no way for you or me or anybody on this earth to know the Father except through a revelation that only comes through Jesus. Now, if you were to stop right there, you could build some wrong doctrine out of what Jesus is saying here. And many have. No one knows the Father except the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Well, there's some, right? There's some that Jesus wills to reveal the Father to. There's others that, that aren't born again because Jesus does not will to reveal the Father. But Jesus didn't stop there. and He fixed that doctrine in the next verse when He said in verse 28, So come to me all. There you go. Fixed. Done. Next. <laughs> Come to me. How many? All. All. Who does Jesus desire to, to reveal the Father to? Everybody. All. <laughs> all. All men. All women. All of us. Jesus wills to reveal the Father to us. Say it. Jesus, Jesus. Wills, wills to reveal the Father, reveal the Father. to me. To me. To me. <laughs> That's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus is as he walked and ministered on this earth. That's his ministry right now through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is a revelation of the Father. He is the visible image of the invisible God. And you could tell it took people a while to get this because Jesus lived and ministered with these disciples for years. And towards the end of that time, ministering on earth with these guys, Philip said to him, show us the Father and it will be sufficient for us. And you can nearly hear the frustration in Jesus' voice when he looks back at him and says, have I been with you so long? In other words, are you serious? Seriously, Philip, come on. He said, if you've seen me, come on, help me out. What did he say? You've seen the Father. Jesus is a revelation of the Father. The Father's will, the Father's character, the Father's plan. Jesus is that revelation. But he said this in verse 28, come to me, come to me all. Now here's who the invitation is to all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. What we have to understand is that's everybody apart from him, without him, in your life, and as your Lord and your Savior, this is a description of you. You are laboring and heavy laden. It's like when he said in Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to who? The poor. He's anointed me to heal the 
brokenhearted. He's anointed me to preach recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are, that are oppressed, to, to, to declare liberty to the captive. And I think what people have failed to understand is that was all of us. Before him and without him, every human on this earth fits neatly into that category of poor, blind, brokenhearted, held captive. Without him, that's who you are. Without him, you are laboring. Without him, you are heavy burdened. You are heavy laden. And he said, come to me and we can change all that. Come to me and I'll make an exchange with you. And this is the great exchange. Let me jump out here a little bit ahead of myself and I'll call it the grace exchange. There's an exchange that Jesus is inviting us into. Come to me, give me your heavy burden and I'll trade you. What did he say he'd give you in exchange for your burden, your labor? What was he going to give you? Rest, rest. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Now connect this to what we talked about just a moment ago. Jesus is a revelation of the father and you don't know the father apart from Jesus revealing him to you. Isn't it interesting to you? It is to me that on the heels of Jesus talking about this great revelation of the father, what's the first thing that comes out of his mouth after that? Rest, rest. We're a new church, less than two years old. And I've done my best over the last couple of years in seeking the Lord and knowing what to say and, and, and what track we're supposed to be on in the word together as a family. And I have endeavored, I don't know that I've always gotten this right, but I've sensed the Lord challenging me, if you will. I don't know if that's the right word, but, but to get to the basics, find the fundamentals, the, the foundational things that, that, that we can build a church on, that we can grow a family in. And when this came up in my spirit a couple of weeks ago, about rest, I kept going back to the Lord thinking, is this really foundational? And it just was in the last 24, 48 hours that I started making this connection and the Lord saying to me, you don't know me apart from this. This is so fundamental and foundational to who he is that it's the first thing Jesus talked about on the heels of saying, I want to reveal the father to you. So come to me. And the first thing he said that would happen as the result of coming to him and you and I discovering who the father is, is we'd find rest. This is fun fundamental. This is foundational, but I don't think we're talking enough about it. And I don't think we understand it to the degree we're supposed to understand it. It's a revelation of our father. Rest reveals the father. And I see two things in that. And I can already tell this is going to take us more than today in a couple of weeks to, to, to really explore. But I see two things in that statement right there. Rest reveals the Father. As we study and we look through the scriptures that, that deal with rest, it's going to reveal to us the character of God. It's going to reveal to us the nature of God, the will of God, what he does, why he does it, how he does it. But it also says to me, there are things that you will never know about him until you're at rest. There are things you will never see, never discover about your father unless you're at rest. Things that you can only see at rest. Now we touch on this all the time around here, but, but this is no exemption. This rest that we're talking about is in every area and every facet of your life. Spirit, first spirit then soul manifesting in rest in the body. And when Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor, listen to who he was talking about here. And this is just the definition of this word of what it means to labor. These are people who have grown weary. These are people who are tired, exhausted with toil or burdens or grief. It means to labor with wearisome effort, to toil. This word, you keep seeing it all the time and you see it throughout scripture. We'll touch on it as the Lord leads us. But to toil is more than just work. 
its work without producing anything. We talked about it, didn't we, in our offering when, when Peter or Jesus said to Peter, launch out into the deep, let down your net for a catch. And you know what Peter said to him? We have toiled all night long, but caught how much? Nothing. That's toil. It's work, 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 work with no production, nothing to show for it. That's toil. And there's nothing more exhausting. Am I telling the truth? I mean, anybody else ever experienced that where you just feel like you work and you work yourself into a frenzy and you sweat and you're up day and night and for whatever reason you get to the end of it and there's nothing to show for it? That's toil. And that, according to Jesus, is everybody without him. No exceptions. That's what life is unless and until you come to him. Life is toil. Life is a burden. Life is exhausting until you come to him and you make this grace exchange. It means to, to labor means to feel fatigue. I don't even have to ask for a show of hands. By implication, it means to work hard, to labor, to toil, to be wearied. But on the other hand, on the other side of this exchange, this rest actually means to cause or permit one to cease, to stop from any movement, any labor, listen, in order to recover and collect his strength. That's what this rest that Jesus is offering you and offering me this rest that reveals the Father, what it actually does for us is it enables us, like nothing else can, to recover our strength. Come on, what's the Lord doing in this body this year? Perfecting, establishing, strengthening, and settling us? Where does this strength come from? Hmm? Well, part of where it comes from is discovering our place in this grace exchange, our labor, our work, our toil for his rest. And in that rest, we find strength like you can't find anywhere else. In that rest, you find recovery like you can't anywhere else. Notice what's connected to that word recovery, the, the gaining back of what you lost. There's another word connected to it. It is the word restoration. Restoration. I love the fact that you can't spell restoration without R-E-S-T, rest. And what did the psalmist say? You restore my soul. You restore my soul. So that tells you rest is a lot more than just grabbing a nap. Rest is a lot more than eight hours of sleep at night. It's part of it, but it's so much more than that. And sad to say, most of the rest of this world, if you were to talk to them about rest and just have them describe rest, they, that's all they know. You're sleepy, take a nap. I'm not getting good rest. Oh, I only got four hours of sleep last night. But there's more to rest than sleep. And yet that's a part of it. And I want us to get to that, but we got to address these things in order. Rest means, again, to cause or permit somebody to cease from any movement, any labor, in order to recover and collect his strength. It means to refresh. It means to keep quiet. This is rest. Spirit, soul, and body. It looks the same in every area of your life. To regain strength spiritually, to regain strength in your soul, to regain strength in your body, to be refreshed spiritually, refreshed in your soul, refreshed in your body. It's rest and it looks the same in every area of your life. But what Jesus said is this is a revelation of God. It's a revelation of the Father. How does this reveal the Father? Well, you go back to the beginning and I mean the beginning, Genesis chapter one. And you're familiar with this. You're familiar with what happened on those first few days of creation. It won't take time to read all of this, but let me just kind of give you an overview. In Genesis chapter one, guys, can I come down here? Are we good? If I come down here, get up in your personal space a little bit. In Genesis chapter one, you remember when God said, let there be light or light be? And light was. 
It says that in verse three, God said, let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good. He said, that's good. That's good. God divided the light from the darkness. He called the light day. The darkness he called night. Evening and the morning were the first day. In verse eight, it says, God called the firmament heaven. And so the evening and the morning were the second day. Later in verse 10, he says, and he saw that it was good. This is good. God looked at it. He spoke it, created it. He looked at it and he said, this is good. In uh, verse 12, he says, the earth brought forth grass and God saw that it was what? Good. The evening and the morning were the third day. In verse 16, God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. God saw that it was good. Evening and the morning were the fourth day. Verse 21 says, God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind, every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was, he saw it was good. This is good, he said. Verse 25, God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, saw that it was good. Then he said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. Verse 31, it says, then God saw everything that he had made. Indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were what day? Are you keeping track here? Six. But that leaves out the last day, the seventh day. And we read about the seventh day in chapter two. Now, you know, you Bible scholars in here, what did God do on the seventh day? He rested. Now, this is just the next day. And if day one was good and day two was good and three and four were good and day five was good and day six, it was very good. What do you assume he called day seven? It was wrong. He did not call it good. In chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 1, says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. You might say it like this. All God's work was finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Listen to the New Living Translation. Do we have that, guys? Can we put that up there? Look at this. God blessed the seventh day and said, he declared it good. Holy. Holy. Day one was good. Day two, three, four, five, and six, they were all good. Very good even. But he called day seven, this day of rest, he gave it a name that no other day had. The day he rested, he called, not good, holy. Holy. Sanctified it. He declared it holy because it was the day he rested from all his work of creation. Now God didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he was done. He rested because the work was finished. And that day that he rested, that seventh day, again, help me out. What did he call it? Holy. Holy. The new King James says he sanctified it. He separated that day. We have days on our calendar Christmas Day, Thanksgiving Day. We've got Memorial Day here in the United States. We've got various days on the calendar. What do we call those days? Holidays. You ever wonder where the word holiday came from? Holy Day. You ever wonder where that came from? The Bible. <laughs> this was the first time anybody had ever taken a holiday, a holy day. And in our, in our vernacular here, at least in the United States, we talk about those days as holidays, but we, we refer to our days of rest. If we're going to take an extended period of rest, we call it vacation, but you, it's not hard to find people, other people in the English speaking language that still call that holiday. 
they call their vacation holiday. Go to the UK, go to, go to England, and, and somebody's taken off for a week or two, and they say, well, I'm going on holiday, going on holy days. Now, whether you're talking about a week's vacation or a Christmas day, you want to know what all those holy days have in common? No work. No work. For the vast majority of people, those holy days mean one thing. No work. I don't work on these holy days. What are you supposed to be doing on the holy days, the separated days, the sanctified days, the days that aren't just like every other day? What are you supposed to be doing on those days? Working, laboring, toiling, exhausting yourself. What are you supposed to be doing on the holy days? Rest. Now, where on earth did that come from? You got to go back a long way to find out where that started. God himself started it. Does God go on vacation? Evidently, it's a holy day. God's on holy day. And all you have to do is look throughout the rest of the Old Testament, even into the New, and you find that that was something so significant to God, so serious to Him. We'll talk more about this as the Lord leads us. But I mean, you think about the top 10 commandments. You remember those, right? No other God before us, before you. Don't steal, don't kill, don't covet, don't commit adultery. I mean, these are some pretty major things. And you can almost feel it. You start talking to that and somebody who really loves the grace of God. No, 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 we're redeemed from all that. Don't be talking to me about the law. It's like, come on, man, think. You think because of grace, now we can have other gods before him? Does that make sense? No. Oh, because of grace, adultery's cool. <laughs> no. Come on. Nobody being honest really would say that. Nobody being honest thinks that way. Grace has not redeemed you from or, or, or made a way for you just to ignore all that. Grace is the power to keep it. Grace is the power to do it. Grace is what came that, that wasn't on the scene before. Man didn't have any strength in and of himself to fulfill that law. Jesus came, fulfilled it for us, gave us the power and freed us from the condemnation when we did miss it, gave us the blood to cover and wash away and wipe away sin. But don't think, oh, don't you dare talk to me about those commandments. Why, Grace? Come on, come on. Don't think like that. Don't think like that. But you want to know what God put right there in the middle of those top 10 commandments? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember it. And keep it holy. Now, in and throughout the law, there was some serious punishment for working on the holy day. There was some serious repercussion, and I thank God that's what we've been redeemed from. We don't have that condemnation hanging over our head. God's not going to strike you dead if you mow your yard on a Sunday. Okay, so thank the Lord for that. But what you can see, again, remember Jesus revealing the Father, revealing what's important to Him, revealing what's significant to Him. All you got to do is go back and look through the Old Testament. You find out, man, this is a big deal to God. My rest is big with Him. Why? Because it reveals him to me in a way that me working can't do it. And it, it enables me to find out things about him that I cannot and will not find out as long as I'm the one laboring, as long as I'm the one toiling. And the psalmist said it this way in the book of Psalm chapter 46. You remember verse 10? You know this one everybody does. Be still and know that I am God. And I don't think we've really fully understood that. I mean, we sew it on pillows and that's great, I guess. But there's deeper revelation to it. There's deeper revelation to that. Be still, he said. Or you could say, rest, stop, cease. Be still and know that I am God. Or in other words, you will not know that I'm God unless you're being still. And one of the big things we have working against us, especially in our culture, is a restlessness. It's a restlessness. We don't very easily enter into this rest, not the kind that Jesus is talking about. Have you noticed that about us? That there's kind of something in us that just wants to keep going all the time and we have a real hard time sitting still? Man, I figured that out. Even in ministry, 
I would sit at that little house that Sarah and I lived in when we got married. And for the first couple of years, we youth pastored together, then started our own ministry. But I had this little office in that house. I had a chair that sat by a window. And when it came time to get ready for a message, I'd, I'd get all my stuff, my Bible, my notebook, my pen. I'd get my hot tea. I'd get everything sitting right where I need it. And I'm about to study and pray and prepare for this message. And I sit down by that open window and I get to looking outside and I'm like, I should go for a walk. <laughs> so leave all that and go walk. And I kept finding myself doing that kind of thing over and over. Sit down, get ready to pray, get ready to study and think, you know what? I really should mow. I really should pick this up. You know what? The, the oil really needs a change in the car. I better go do that. And I figured out like, man, my immaturity, my immaturity keeps me moving all the time. Jeremy, sit still, man. Sit still. Be still and know that he's God. I might say it to you like this. Be still and know that he's God, not you. Because if you're the one constantly moving all the time, if you're the one that's constantly working, constantly toiling, constantly at something, doing something, putting this fire out, chasing this thing down, you may not use these words to say it, but evidently you think, at least on some level, you're God. You're the one who's supposed to fix all this stuff. You're the one who's supposed to provide. You're the one who's supposed to supply. You're the one who's supposed to heal and make right. And be still, he said. Because there's something you can, something about God that you're only going to find out in stillness and in rest. Amen? In uh, Hebrews chapter 4, turn there with me. I had kind of a funny thing happen to me getting ready for this message today. I, uh, Sarah and I were away together with our family a few weeks ago. Those of you who are here on that Sunday and Jordan preached to you. Didn't he do an awesome job? That was awesome. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate you standing in. We were away resting. And this has been a big deal to Sarah, to me, our marriage, our family. From the beginning of our marriage, the Lord really went to work driving this home for us at the beginning of our marriage. Um, and when the time's right, I've got some amazing stories to tell you. Some of the greatest miracles of provision that we've ever personally seen have come in the Lord providing specifically for our rest. And I believe I've got scripture for all that. I want to show that to you. But I think about September 1st, 2010, and that was our first official day in our own ministry. And since I graduated high school, man, I went to work for mom and dad. I went to work for my grandparents, my family there in Fort Worth. I sort of turned Kenneth Copeland Ministries into Kenneth Copeland University. I mean, I just went just and every day was learning how you do this and how you do that and worked a number of jobs for them. By the time Sarah and I got married, I'd been youth pastoring for a couple of years. We did that Oh, I guess I'd been doing it for four years and we did that together for another couple of years and then we traveled as representatives of that ministry. But September 1st, 2010 was our first official day in our own ministry. Now, what does that mean? It means we ain't getting a paycheck anymore. It means daddy's not signing the checks. Papa's not signing the checks. It means that ministry is no longer our source and supply. It's no longer the channel. So September 1st, that day was our first official day in our own ministry. And the Lord was very specific with us. As a matter of fact, some of you have heard me tell this story, but that first day, that whole first week in our own ministry, you want to know where we were? Colorado, driving I-70 through the mountains, believing the Lord had called us up here somewhere, not knowing where. That's 12 years ago. But we were not up here preaching. I didn't have any speaking engagements in any churches. She and I had not been invited to go do this or to go do that in the ministry. The Lord told us, sent us up here to rest. Sent us here to rest, which seemed funny to me. You know, going back to that whole not getting a paycheck thing anymore. It seemed real funny to me. Lord, are you sure that day one we're supposed to be on holiday, holy day, vacation? He said, I want you starting this thing at rest. Start it at rest. So we did. 
Justice, who was our only child at that point, was not yet four months old. Here we are, no paychecks, no medical coverage of any kind. That's what you do, right? Quit your job, have a baby, go on vacation. <laughs> None of this makes sense. Not to, the, not to the normal way of thinking. But the Lord spoke and said, I want you to start at rest. And it was amazing. It was miraculous. He provided for that whole thing. I look back on it now. I'm not sure we paid for anything but food. He just one thing after another. Paid for, paid for, paid for. Start at rest, he said. This is something the Lord made a big deal to us about in the beginning. That rest was not just a weekend or Saturday. Rest was not just a vacation, a few days off. That our rest was a way of life. That this is the way he was inviting us to live life with him. To live our marriage at rest. Raise our children at rest. Lead our ministry at rest. In Hebrews chapter 4, well, back up to chapter 3. Let's read down into this. In Hebrews chapter 3, start at verse 7. We'll read several verses here. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now, what rebellion is he talking about? He's talking about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt in the wilderness and God calling them into the promised land. He said, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry. Other translations say I was grieved. I was grieved with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. They have no revelation of me. And that would be angering. That would be grieving, wouldn't it? To show yourself, to demonstrate yourself so big, so bold, so strong for these people. To, to send in a savior and a deliverer when they were in bondage in Egypt. Now you remember those, that last generation in Egypt. What were they doing? Man, they were making bricks. They were literally, physically heavy, burdened. You go back and look at the book of Exodus. Before that, these people were thriving. They were prospering. They were growing to the point where Pharaoh was afraid of them. We don't hear that talked about a whole lot. But this nation of, I don't know, a million plus Hebrew children who are living in a land that's not their own, the leader of that nation was afraid of these people. The Bible says they were growing more and mightier and Pharaoh called together his crew and he's like, look, we got to do something. We got to come up with a plan because what if our enemies attack us and these Hebrew people decide to join our enemies? He's terrified of them. He is terrified of these people that are prospering and thriving in a land which, be honest, they had no business prospering in. And yet the blessing of the Lord on them was causing them to increase. They were becoming more and mightier. So he comes up with this plan. And the plan is to set taskmasters over them and to turn these people into slaves, into servants, into their workforce, and to make them the ones responsible for building these cities, Pharaoh's supply cities. And so this is his big plan that he's come, with, come up with, to burden them with the task of building. But if you read Exodus closely, it didn't work. The Bible says they just kept growing. They just kept thriving. Even, even while Pharaoh's trying to physically burden them, he's putting a physical tax on them, and it's not doing what he's wanting it to do. So he comes up with phase two of the plan. And he says, now we're going to make them serve, and this is the word the Bible uses in the book of Exodus, with rigor. R-I-G-O-R, -R, with rigor. If you look that word up, it's a word that means to, to make them work, to make them labor with the effort to break them. With the effort to break them down physically to where they can't do it anymore. To so break these people. And in the midst of that plan to make them serve with rigor, he comes up with another part of the plan. 
And this part worked. You know what his plan was? He said, all the babies, all the babies that are born, kill them. And he commanded the Hebrew midwives, when you go to deliver a child, if it's a baby, baby boy, throw it in the river, kill it. Now that just shows you how long ago this was, right? That just shows you what a barbaric time this was in ancient, ancient history. And how uncivilized these people were that the government would condone and support the killing of babies. Right? I mean, that was so long ago. Unimaginable now, right? Thank God for what he's doing in our nation. Thank God. Because it was this move that Pharaoh made that broke these people. It was not the physical unrest that broke them. He broke them on the inside. I'm telling you, it's the same spirit that drove it then that's driving it now. It's the effort to break the soul of a nation. And it broke these people. And you can imagine why it would. To hear the screaming and the crying through the streets. To see their loved ones, their little ones ripped from their arms. It broke them, and that's when they cried out to God. That's when he heard their voice. That's when he called Moses, and he, he, he introduced himself to this man in that burning bush, and he said, I got an assignment for you. You go get them, and you get them out of there. Why? My people have lost their rest. They're not at rest. Not at rest on the inside, not at rest physically. You go get them, you go get them out of there, and you go tell them, I've got a land for them. You go tell them, I've got a place for them that I'm going to bring them to. But notice this. God brings them out, right? He introduces himself to them in this big way, plague after plague after plague. And with every plague, it's destroying Egypt. But right on the other side of that coin, it's saying to the Hebrew people, I'm your God and I love you. And I'm bringing you out of this place. I'm going to bring you out so that I might bring you in to this promised land, this land that flows with milk and honey. I'm going to bring you into this because I love you. This is him introducing himself to them. They don't know him, but this is his way of saying, hey, I'm your God. How are you? Nice to meet you. He brings them out with a mighty hand, an outstretched hand. They step up to that Red Sea. And of course, you know the story. They stand there and they've got the Red Sea in front of them and, and Pharaoh's army breathing down their neck and it looks like, man, we die if we go that way. We die if we go this way. They start screaming. They start crying. Man, what are we doing here? We should have stayed in Egypt. But you know what Moses said to him? You can read this in the scripture. He said, be still. And the Amplified says, hold your peace and remain at rest for the Lord will fight for you. Be still. Hold your peace, remain at rest. God's going to introduce himself. God's going to show up on the scene and do what only he can do while you rest. Splits that sea in two. They go walking across on dry land. Pharaoh's army tries to do the same thing. God removes the barriers from the waters. Pharaoh's army drowns in that sea. He brings them into the desert. He feeds them miraculously, clothes them miraculously, gives them water miraculously, brings them right up to the edge of the promised land. And they send out spies to go into, we'll look at this in the weeks to come, but Moses sends out spies. They come back and say, oh yeah, it's great. Yes, yeah, beautiful. Flows with milk and honey, grapes the size of your head, but we can't go in there. What do you mean we can't go in there? There's giants there. The walls are tall. So, you know. Can't go in. Caleb and Joshua are like, what are you talking about? We should go like right now. What are we doing still standing here? But instead of listening to those two, they listened to the other 10 and they wouldn't go in. They wouldn't go in. And this is why it's called rebellion. What did God say? He said, I was grieved 
They go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. They still don't believe me. They still don't know who I am and how I do things and why I do things for them. And he said in verse 11, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That promised land, that physical place, God referred to it as his rest. Verse 12 says, beware brethren, lest there be in any of you, he's talking to us now, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceit, deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it's said today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, it, uh, was it uh, not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry? Who was he grieved with, with 40, for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Why could they not go into the promised land? Why couldn't they go into a land that flows with milk and honey? Why couldn't they go into this big, beautiful land? Well, a land where they would not be burdened with building. That's what God said to them. Their city's already built. You don't have to build it. There's wells already dug. You don't have to dig them. There's vineyards that are already planted. You don't have to do any of it. What do you have to do? Rest enjoy it. What kept them from going in? Unbelief. Unbelief. And that's why chapter four, verse one says just a little bit more. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. This gospel that was preached to these people, there is a land. It's a land of provision. It's a land where you rest. That gospel did nothing for them because they didn't believe it. They did not mix faith with it. And what's he writing to us? New Testament church. He's saying, hey, there's still a rest. There is still a rest out there for God's people. And you should, and he uses this word, and it's not a word the Bible uses so much, be afraid that you don't enter into that rest. What's going to keep you out of it? Unbelief. Unbelief. Not believing God is who he said he is. Not knowing him will keep you out of that rest. Not believing that he provides, not believing that he supplies, keeps you out of that rest and it keeps you toiling. It keeps you working. It keeps you performing. Why? Because you don't know who he is. He said, there's a rest that's still available to the people of God. He said again in verse three, we who have believed do enter that rest. As he said, I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished, you hear that? The works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. He's inviting us to enter his rest. What rest is that? It's that day seven rest. He's calling us into that day. He's calling us on holiday with him. That day where the work has ceased, that day where the toil, where you work and work and work and it produces nothing, those days are over. He's inviting us into his rest. How do you get into it? Faith. Faith is the way into grace. Do you hear me? Faith is the way into that rest. There is no way into it apart from faith, apart from being confident in knowing who God is. He said in, what is this, verse six? He said, since therefore it remains that some must enter in and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience or unbelief. Again, he designates a certain day saying in David today, after such a long time as it's been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day 
There remains, verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. That's us. There's a rest for us. For he who entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. There is a rest, church, that's available to us. There's a rest that God through Jesus is inviting us into. And it is more than taking a nap. It's more than a good night's sleep. If that's all anybody understands about rest, and they can't sleep, listen, you can pop all the pills. You can drink the bottle dry and put yourself in a semi-comatose state for the next 8, 10, 12 hours. But when you wake up, just because you slept does not mean you rested. Rest has got to start in the spirit. Why don't people, why doesn't this world rest? Why do, do we as a culture, why are we so rest deprived? Why are we so starving for rest? Number one is because people don't know how to do it. They don't understand what it is. And if they don't know what it is, they don't know how to do it. They think resting is just sleeping. And so they're just trying anything and everything they can to get some sleep. But rest has got to start in the spirit. That's why Jesus said, come to me. You don't get this spiritual rest apart from him. You get rest on the inside by coming to him, believing that the work is finished, believing that what he did is what is enough to make you the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And whatever work that we do from here out, it's not toil. It produces. It's got grace all over it. The good works that he's called and created us to do, the obedience that we now live in and operate in, these are not works of the law to earn our righteousness. These are grace works. These are grace-infused works. These are works that, that, drain, that, that strengthen us instead of draining us. These are works that produce something, and it's not toil. I said it's not toil, but you don't get that apart from Jesus. How come people don't rest? Huh? Because it starts with coming to him and the rest that he gives us in our spirit. If you keep going there in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, come learn of me for I'm meek and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your soul. What he does in your spirit overflows into your soul. And if your soul is troubled, that's your mind, your will, your emotions. If that's troubled, if that's disquieted, if that's deprived and depleted and not restored, then physical rest is not going to do anything for you. I'll tell you this story and we can be done. Musicians, you guys go ahead and come on up. When I was working for mom and dad in the church, I wasn't youth pastoring or anything yet. I was working for them. I was serving the, the worship leader and, and the guy who was kind of over, we probably wouldn't have called it this at the time, but now you might think the, the creative elements of the church, the, the, the worship in the sanctuary and children's and so on. I served under him for a long time, years. And man, this stuck with me. He came to work one day and I don't know how we got into this conversation, but this guy was a real health conscious guy, worked out, ate well, and he was just kind of aware of that stuff. And I remember him saying something that he had read in, I don't know, some men's health magazine. And it was an article that had to do with what it called sleep debt and how we as a culture were in debt when it came to our sleep. And in this article, they said, think about it like this. For every hour that you're awake, he said, it's like putting a brick on your shoulder. For every hour you're awake. He said, but for every hour you sleep, it's like taking two bricks off. So if you're awake for 16, you've put 16 bricks on your shoulders. If you're asleep for eight, you've taken them all off and you start the day not in debt. But the problem was that we as a culture and the restlessness of our culture 
People were awake, not for 16, but for 18, 20, and sleeping at best six hours, maybe four or less. So what happens? They wake up with bricks on their shoulders. And man, it painted a picture for me, even as a young man, and it's never left me to this day. The only problem was, when I would lay down at night, for whatever reason, my mind's racing, my mind's racing, my mind's racing. And I know you've done this before. You lay there and you look at that clock and you think, okay, I've been up 16, 17 hours. So I've got 17 bricks. If I fall asleep right now, I can take 16 off. I might wake up with one, but I got to go to sleep. Got to go to sleep. Got to go to sleep. Come on, go to sleep. And you stare. And for me, it was that little digital clock with the red numbers. And you watch as... Each minute ticks away, ticks away, and there's another hour gone and another hour gone. So it's not just the physical act of laying down that does anything. It's the quieting of the mind that comes from the stillness of the spirit that enables you to lay down in peace and sleep. This is part of the rest that Jesus has promised us, and it's a gift. This is the last thing I want to say about it, and we'll be done. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden. The New Living says, those who carry heavy burdens, and I will give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. It's a gift. Rest is a gift. And sad to say, it's a gift that far too many believers are not receiving. But you know this church, because we talk about it and I pound it into you over and over, whatever gift is given by grace has to be received by, how do we enter this rest? By faith, by faith. Faith itself is a rest. Well, I thought it was a fight. It is. It's the fight to remain at rest. And every one of you is look across this room. You're doing it so well right now. You're going, am I? Yeah. Look at you. Not one person that I'm aware of came in here today and found your seat. Not one of you took a look at that chair. Walked around it, studied it. Not one of you asked our lead usher, can I see the paperwork on this chair? Uh, when was this chair made? Where was this chair? Are these organic materials that this chair was made from? I, I, I need to see the paperwork. Can I see the uh, maximum capacity on this chair, please? Nobody did that. Nobody said, can you show me the studies on this chair? And, and before I sit down, before I, I, put all, I put all of who I am in this seat, I need to see the studies. I need you to prove to me this is going to hold me up. Now, one, is, can I see a hand in here? Did anybody ask for paperwork today? No. What did you do? I said, you may be seated and you, it's faith, confidence, confidence that it was going to support, confidence that it would keep you up, confidence that it would sustain you without looking for any further evidence, any more proof. You know what the Bible says? You've been seated with Jesus in heavenly places. That's your place of rest. That's the place where you're not holding yourself up. It's grace. It's his strength. It's his favor on you and in you that's supporting you and keeping you up. What I started to say to you a minute ago was that in preparation for this, I mentioned it when, when Sarah and I were in the beginning days of our ministry, it was such a big deal to us. And I saw so much in the word that as I was getting ready to bring it to you, I saw like half a, do half a dozen different directions to go in. And as of like six o'clock, seven o'clock, eight o'clock this morning, I'm going, Lord, which way do we go? Which way do we go? Is it this scripture? Is it that scripture? What do you want me to say about this? And finally, the Lord spoke to me. He said, you're not really at rest in this, are you? You need to rest. Somebody said, I need to rest. I need some rest. And I think it's so funny that he asked me to come in here today and preach rest to you totally confident that he'd give us something to say. Totally confident. He, he knew what we needed and he'd give it to us. Amen. Did you get anything out of this this morning? Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this message. 
If you need someone to pray with you, there are several ways for you to contact us. Feel free to give us a call at 817-577-0180. You can also contact us through the Legacy Studios app or either of our websites. Giving options are available online at pearsonsministries.com and legacychurch.family. If you prefer, you can also text an offering. Simply text LEGACY in any dollar amount to the number 28950 and follow the prompts. Be blessed today. We love you. And remember, you are always welcome here in the House of Faith.